0: Hello, everyone. I'm Miriam Alhili, a GYN oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm representing the SGO Education Committee and the Clinical Trial Subcommittee. And today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Amanda Nicholas-Fader, Professor of Gynecology and Obstetrics and Oncology at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Fader needs no introduction. She is uh, very well known in our field, having um, leading and conducting multiple clinical trials, especially in the rare gynecologic cancer space. She's currently a PI or co-PI of three energy clinical trials. So Dr. Fader, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Hilly It's wonderful to be here. Fantastic. This clinical trials podcast will be focused on discussing the specific questions of mentorship, uh, conducting clinical trials in rare diseases in gynecologic oncology, and then advice for the listeners on how to gather a team and what the success components are for that. So, Dr. Fader, you've had tremendous success in in this space, and recently you authored and published the clinical trial on the use of trastuzumab in advanced and recurrent uterine CRS carcinoma, which was a phase two clinical trials. So. Can you give us a brief description of the objectives of study and your key findings?
1: Certainly, and thank you for that wonderful uh, introduction. And any success I've had in clinical trials has been from wonderful mentors and teammates who helped me achieve success, uh, because as we'll talk about a lot today, success in clinical trials depends on having great multidisciplinary and multi-site teams, especially in the rare tumor space where one can't always run these trials at one institution because of volume issues. And so I've been interested in uterine serous carcinoma for quite some time since I was a fellow. And we develop a randomized phase two study to examine the role of trastuzumab in HER2-positive tumors, uh, uterine serous tumors uh, in either the advanced or recurrent setting. And that's because like breast and gastric cancers, uterine cancers are one of the last bastions of uh, tumors that have HER2-positivity or overexpression. And especially for uterine serous, carcinomas, where up to 25% uh, to almost 30% of patients may have tumors that overexpress this uh, growth factor receptor. And similar to the data in breasts, which showed that the addition of trastuzumab to uh, chemotherapy and in, in um, HER2-positive breast cancer uh, tumors um, improved survival for women with, with these, this type of breast cancer. And we wanted to test that same theory in uterine serous carcinoma. And we know that we use surgery and carboplatin paclitaxel as the standard backbone of chemotherapy for the treatment of advanced or recurrent um, uterine cancers. But we wanted to test the hypothesis of the addition of trastuzumab with the chemotherapy and then using trastuzumab maintenance thereafter for several years if the patient was tolerating it and had not progressed and determine if that improved both progression-free and overall survival. And the primary endpoint was uh, progression-free overall survival. And we ended up in enrolling uh, 62 patients on this trial. 58 were eligible. We did have a lot of trouble with in- enrollment and-, and finding patients that would fit the bill for the study criteria. And I think this is a problem in general with rare tumors, but we persisted. And we closed the trial early because we saw a significant difference in uh, progression-free survival when the trastuzumab was added in both the advanced stage disease and recurrent cancer cohorts. But the most striking progression-free survival difference of several months was seen in those who were treated up front with those with stage 3 and 4 disease who'd had surgery and then were getting chemo for the first time. And the addition of trastuzumab improved progression-free survival in that cohort. And then in a subsequent overall survival analysis study update that we published two years later, we also saw a significant improvement in overall survival in that cohort that was treated up front, which we did not observe in those treated with recurrent disease. And so that has led to a change in the NCCN guidelines um, in which uh, trastuzumab with carboplatin paclitaxel is now the preferred regimen for women with HER2 positive advanced or recurrent disease and it's led to the development of other trial concepts in the HER2 space.
0: That's wonderful. Having such a practice changing, such practice changing results is really impressive. So that must have taken a lot of efforts to come up with the, the concept and <laughs> fix the patient's uh, criteria. So can you walk us through maybe the path that you took to develop the, the concept first and then yeah. implement the trial? Yes, thank you. That's a great
1: question. I don't know about you, but I love Tumor Board. I think the great, great ideas often, research ideas come from talking with others at Tumor Board. And when I was a second-year fellow, um, really became interested in rare tumors and started exploring, you know, looking at the data at that time. This was in the mid-2000s and seeing that we had this, again, one size fits all treatment strategy for women with advanced poor prognostic uterine cancers. But in the GOD trials at the time, we was noticing like the women with uterine serous carcinoma had significantly worse survival. They just weren't responding as well to these therapies. And so we started looking at questions of biomarkers in, in this population. And I actually submitted this concept of, of trastuzumab in this setting to the ASCO AACR clinical trials course. It was one of the best weeks of my life, really, in my professional Professional life because it really opened my eyes to what was possible with trials and really inspired me to pursue a career in clinical trials and I was very fortunate to work with some great mentors there who I'm still in touch with actually who helped me develop the concept but then I graduated and I went into private practice actually I was at a private center that was affiliated with Johns Hopkins in Baltimore And had, they had a wonderful trials program there, but just, I just had no idea how to execute the trial because I think that the trials course, the young investigator courses prepare you for concept development, but not necessarily, you know, give you the skills and implementation. And so it actually took me three years and with a team of mentors and wonderful people to get the trial open and executed. And first we had to attract funding interest. And so we went to uh, Genentech Roche, who's the manufacturer of Trastuzumab. And initially, because I was, I was a nobody. Uh, you know, I was just graduated from fellowship, I couldn't gain any traction there. And so I started reaching out to uh, basically cold calling other faculty who had done uterine cancer, serous cancer research, Warner High, Angela Secord, Alessandro Santin, and told them I had this ready to ready made trial and wanted to know how how could I get it done. And all of these wonderful investigators really came together to support me. They, for some reason, believed in me and, and helped support me to get this off the ground. And Dr. Santin had obviously so well known in this space and had done all this wonderful translational work. And so together he and I partnered with the rest of our faculty at several sites and we opened it at 11 centers. And it took 10 years from concept development to results. And so it was, it was hard fought, but I'm so grateful that I had the support of virtual mentors around the country
0: as well as local mentors to get it done. And I'm, I'm so glad that we did. That's amazing. So almost 10, 15 years, in including the talking to industry, getting funding and getting the, the, the trial executed. So I think that's very, <laughs> it's reassuring to know that it's doable, but might take time, a lot of time. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I
1: think persistence and Finding your people in the right team is really critical to that. And I, I, I just didn't know how to do that at first and then found, found my way.
0: So you talked about finding the mentors. So the what were the key things that you wanted to find in your mentors or look for? And how did that kind of synergy and relationship develop? For clinical trials as well as other mentors outside of clinical trials.
1: Well, while I had really wonderful mentors and fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, where you you now are a wonderful mentor to several of our (laughs) our trainees from Hopkins and others, when you move on and become an attending, it becomes a little more challenging. And so I had wonderful couple wonderful local mentors, including Dr. Deborah Armstrong at Johns Hopkins, who took me under her wing. But there were no rare tumor folks in the area, and so I really just tried to do my homework and read a lot about the what was happening in the literature at the time, who was doing the kind of work that I aspired to do. And so I reached out to the individuals that I spoke about. I've also reached out to David Gershenson when I started doing low-grade serous carcinoma research and formed these really wonderful partnerships and virtual alliances with people I'd never trained under, but really took... Treated me as their own, and it was just fantastic. And saw the strength in a collaboration. And so I look in, for an, a mentor, someone with the experience and track record in trials and in a particular area of expertise. And I think it's really important I th- as a mentee that I came to them with ideas and some concepts somewhat fleshed out, so that they knew I was somewhat serious. And but I needed guidance and 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 help in terms of. Um, refinement of the trials and execution and funding, et cetera. And so we set clear goals and made solid arrangements to meet frequently Um, we tried to score some early wins at first with, I will tell you another thing. It took me several years to, um, get on the NRG corpus committee, which I've been trying to do since, uh, since I graduated. Now I think the NRG has such a wonderful commitment to young investigators, but it didn't exist necessarily 15 years ago. And so, so I worked with them before putting on a big trial, doing smaller things like applying to do retrospective ancillary analyses of clinical trials that existed within the GOG or the NRG retrospective reviews and white papers and just developed a track record of trust with them that I was serious about learning more about this area and becoming a a researcher in this space and And that's how, you know, little by little, we formed relationships and started doing trials together. And they were very, very generous with their time and with their advice and with their funding as well. Because, for example, with the uterine serous trial, we did have some funding for it, but it was capped. And so several of the sites had to put in additional funding in order to get the trials done. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers of conducting
0: investigator-initiated, as well as cooperative group trials, is that they're very costly. That's actually an excellent point. A lot of times there are obstacles that you that are unforeseen and challenges. So with the funding barriers and it sounds like there's a lot of generosity, how how is that dealt with and who are the key players when it comes to that in getting funding?
1: I think just knowing what it costs to run a trial at your center and a different types of trial, knowing what's expected at your institution in terms of uh, funding for the research personnel and negotiating smartly with your industry or Partners, the the cooperative group studies are obviously negotiated at a much higher level, and institutions find a lot of value in in so in obviously opening NCI and and other cooperative group studies. And so, for the IITs and translational studies and that sort of thing, you know, negotiating with industry partners or or foundational grant agencies to get your costs covered, applying for grants additional foundation grants and and potentially our awards to perform the translational work or the ancillary qualitative work that may be needed is really important. And sometimes your institution has grants that you can apply for for young investigators. A a lot of cancer centers have internal grants available or departments of OBGYN and so just knowing what resources you have available is really critical.
0: Absolutely. And so when you built your clinical trials team with how did that come about?
1: Four years into my career, there was already a really robust clinical trials team at the Cancer Center here and a lot of a lot of cancer centers that participate in trials will have a, a team available, but, but you're right. And at some centers, um, it requires building that team. And we've certainly, we've seen a lot of trials growth here in the last few years due to the leadership of folks like Deb Armstrong and Stephanie Gayard and, and others. You just have to demonstrate a track record in trials to build that team that you, that you're going to have the ability to bring in funding for the trials or grants. But having really experienced trials, research nurses and regulatory personnel are critical as trials have become so much more complex. Rare tumor designs are no exception with the really adaptive and unique trial concepts that are being developed now and the need for multi-site collaboration. And so we also have a SPORE program at Hopkins, which is an NCI program with designated funding for specific types of cancer. And so we do also conduct some some through our cervical and ovarian cancer spores. But with the IITs, it's again, you know, building a research team across multiple sites, of invested collaborators that are serious about studying questions, build consortiums in, in order to study problems. And with that initial consortium we developed with the uterine serous carcinoma, we published around six or seven papers together, including the trial manuscripts, and really tried to start to build a, a research story around that. And by having people take turns with who to take the lead on things and being generous and flexible
0: with one another, I feel like we, we were able to accomplish some, some nice goals. That's great. Sounds like having that portfolio and demonstrating that you've conducted research and investigation in the area is an important factor in getting buy-in and, and like you said, uh, gaining traction. What What advice would you give to young investigators when it comes to that aspect of building a portfolio?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So we all start somewhere. I'm still learning so much about clinical trials and and how to execute them but i think participating in formal clinical trials training is really important it's just become such exciting time for trials but floating with different types of trial designs and opportunities and regulatory aspects it's it's just impossible to to know how you know become a part of that world without some formal training i think and so if one can get that in fellowship, I highly recommend it. But even if you didn't get it in fellowship, because I didn't have a ton in fellowship until I went to the AACR ASCO course. But That course is really wonderful. There are several young, ingu- young Investigator Clinical Trials courses available. We're going to be talking about one, I think, today that the SGO is about to launch, the SGO Bridges Research Program, where you can meet with mentors. You can vet a concept and build a concept from start to finish and learn about what are the things that you, additional things you might need in order to achieve success, such as a translational partner or a big data partner. You know, you learn so much from those uh, collaborations well beyond those courses that carry you through um, with your child development. Also mm-hmm. getting involved with. The cooperative groups, the NRG and the GOG Foundation, you know, obviously have, you know, the New Scholars and the Young Investigators Program. So getting involved at that level as well with the cooperative group
0: is, is a really great entree into, into trials. We're very fortunate that the SGO and Energy have invested a lot of uh, efforts and funding into developing programs for young investigators, as you mentioned, and the, developing the next generation of clinical trialists. So you brought up the Bridges program. Would you like to tell us a little more about what the program uh, is all about?
1: I'd be delighted to. And I'm really happy to be working with you and, and Dr. Ferris and the SGO Education Committee on this, uh, with as well as with Sarah Adams and Becca Ren, Lisa Barlett. And thank you to the SGO Education Committee for all this kind of programming you're doing, um, because I think that's really critical. We developed last year the what's called the SGO Bridges Research Initiative. And this is a methodology and clinical trials and translational science course that will help address critical gynecologic cancer research questions. And the purpose of this SGO initiative is, like you said, to develop the next generation of clinical investigators who, who are going to design and lead the next investigator and cooperative group gynecologic trials. And what this is, is a a several month long longitudinal program. It is funded. And so any participants will have their course fees and their travel all covered. But we're going to be opening up an application process, I believe, in late September. So coming up here in a few weeks with a maximum of 30 workshop participants who can apply and submit a preliminary protocol concept, a personal statement, and a letter of support from their institution. And these selected individuals can be either third or third fourth-year juvenile oncology fellows who've completed some kind of coursework in trials or statistics, or faculty in GYN and medical radiation oncology who are less than 10 years from fellowship graduation and have demonstrated a serious commitment to careers as trialists. And there's going to be a combination of twice monthly Zoom didactics with some of the leading trial experts in the world, as well as meetings with small group mentorship teams where you'll get to develop your concept with your mentors and your peers that are assigned to your small group. And so each group is going to consist of two clinical trialists and two translational science mentors, because one of the reasons we're calling is the bridges program is to bridge the divide between taking a translational science concept and bringing it to the the bedside to the trialists. And so we're going to introduce folks to each other and help those individuals who may not have a translational science background or not have a colleague who who can partner with them to introduce the right people to one another so they can develop great concepts together. And this is going to launch, I believe, at the end of January at the first NRG meeting and and consist of three in-person meetings as well at NRG, winter and summer meeting and the STO annual meeting.
0: Wow, that sounds really exciting. We're, we're all looking forward to seeing what, how that's going to uh, turn out. And thank you so much for uh, you and your team for your time in, in dedicating this to our, the next generation. So that's an introduction for our, our listeners to be able to, <laughs> uh, to go ahead and, and look for the announcements of the program. A piece of advice that you wanted to give other investigators that are starting, something you wish you would have known ahead of time before you started your process of developing and implementing your clinical trials, what would you say the most important things were?
1: Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) I think if I had reached out to mentors sooner before trying to (laughs) navigate things on my own with little experience, I think I might have had success more uh, or at least... A possibility of success more quickly and not spun my wheels as much. And so I would say if you're at an institution with a small center or a center that doesn't have mentors in the space that you're looking to develop, please reach out to mentors at other centers. I work with a number of different people at different institutions as a mentee and in some cases as a mentor. And some of my most wonderful professional relationships um and so i want people to not be afraid of reaching out to someone they don't know at all for advice because that helped me immensely That's when great. i did that
0: so as you mentioned you're working with some mentees and and you're doing a great job paying it forward so what do you find is the most uh, rewarding when it comes to these experiences with mentees
1: the intellectual back and forth is just fantastic I learned so much from some of the mentees I've worked with and they look, you know, how they might look at a problem in a different way and how together we can put together a a better concept. The friendships that are formed are invaluable. And just having, there's not a ton of rare tumor investigators. And so just working together is critical. I know it's a cliche, but there's, there's strength in numbers here and, and forming consortiums and alliances critical. David Gershenson, Angela Secord both have taught me that. And I think to be in a mentor-mentee relationship where there isn't a competition. So finding a mentor who's going to Support you no matter what and is not competing with you for something. And there's no hidden agenda. There's no, you know, concerns there. And so I think those are things to think about.
0: So to conclude, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time, for your insights, and your words of wisdom. I think there's a lot to learn from what you talked about with us today. Do you have any concluding remarks, any final comments, a recipe for success that you wanted to end with?
1: We need the best minds in the field working on these problems. You know, women with rare tumors often have the worst prognoses and have an outsized impact on survival and outcomes in our field. And so I really welcome more people. Being curious about and wanting to study these problems and becoming a clinical trialist is really rewarding. It's frustrating at times, but it's overall incredibly rewarding and has been, you know, some of the highlights of my career have been bu- building trials with others. So thank you for everything you've done and it, and the SGO is doing to help further that for, for me and for others. I think this is, is going to be wonderful to launch the
0: Bridges program with you. And I'm really excited about that. Absolutely. We're all very excited to see what's next uh, for the SGO and young investigators and investigators with experience who want to continue the work. Thank you again so much, uh, Dr. Fader. We really appreciate you and everything you've done for the field. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On the Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.